Shalom, friends. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Access. This is Timothy, and I'm glad that you're joining me in studying the scriptures today. Quick question. Have you ever been in a situation where you were entitled to something, but it was intentionally being held from you? How did you deal with that situation? Now, I've seen one too many people play the victim card. They whine and complain to anybody that would listen while stomping their feet like an angry toddler. Others might patiently wait, quietly hoping that it will eventually come their way. They carry the attitude of, well, if it happens, it happens, and if it doesn't, then I guess it wasn't meant to be, but I still hope that I get what's mine. And then there are those that might take matters into their own hands. They would do whatever it takes to make certain that they get what they are entitled to, and nobody's getting in the way of this determined person. And often, that would include a great deal of planning, scheming, and perhaps some stealthy maneuvering. (laughs) My kids can be terribly creative. Uh, Sometimes they believe that they are entitled to certain things, like screen time. Uh, That includes the computer, the television, their tablets, and gaming devices. Now, we've had to set some boundaries and limitations to this privilege, such as um, a set time frame in the afternoon for device usage, and a maximum amount of total screen time allowed. Now, keep in mind, they are entitled to these privileges on the condition of first things first. So homeschool assignments completed, chores completed, meals have been eaten, and they've spent some time um, in leisure reading and some outdoor fresh air. Now, sometimes their disrespectful or irresponsible behavior warrants a loss of screen time privilege. And that could be for a couple days up to a couple weeks. But when one sibling who has their privilege revoked sees another sibling enjoying their screen time, that sense of entitlement creeps in. Now this leads to some sneaky behavior like hiding under the blankets with their portable gaming devices at nighttime or or waking really, really early in the morning before I wake up and they try to sneak in some television viewing on very low volume. (laughs) And they might experience less guilt about that because they are entitled to a certain amount of screen time and they have been compliant with meeting first things first during this time of digital media deprivation. (laughs) They push through and they find a way to get what they believe they deserve. Now, just to be clear, I don't condone this behavior, but I must say, they remind me so much of myself when I was a child. Our study today is called Pushing Through. Now, if you need a handout for today's Access Learn study, please visit our Facebook group, Connections Ministries of Canada, and you'll find all of our studies under the Files tab. Also, visit our website at connectionsministries.com. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on any of our studies. As you listen today, I do recommend having a Bible handy to follow along. And I encourage you to take some time with your own Access Church communities and review this study together. Now let's get started, pushing through. Today, my wife Beverly will be reading Genesis chapter 38 from the Complete Jewish Bible. It was at this time that Yehuda went off from his brothers and settled near a man named Hira, who was an Adulamai. There Yehuda saw one of the daughters of a certain Kenani whose name was Shua, and he took her and slept with her. She conceived and had a son, whom he named Er. She conceived again and had a son, and she called him Onan. Then she conceived yet again and had a son, whom she called Shelah. He was in Kaziv when she gave birth to him. 
Yehuda took a wife for Er his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er Yehuda's firstborn was evil from Adonai's perspective, so Adonai killed him. Yehuda said to Onan, Go and sleep with your brother's wife. Perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, and preserve your brother's line of descent. However, Onan knew that the child would not count as his, so whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground so as not to give his brother offspring. What he did was evil from Adonai's perspective, so he killed him too. Then Yehuda said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Stay a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I don't want him to die too, like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived at home with her father. In due time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Yehuda, died. After Yehuda had been comforted, he went up to be with his sheep shearers in Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamai. Tamar was told, Your father-in-law has gone up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, completely covered her face with her veil, and sat at the entrance to Ainaim, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, but she still was not being given to him as his wife. When Yehuda saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, because she had covered her face. So he went over to her where she was sitting, and said, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, Come, let me sleep with you. She answered, What will you pay to sleep with me? He said, I will send you a kid from the flock of goats. She said, Will you also give me something as a guarantee until you send it? He answered, What should I give you as a guarantee? She said, Your seal, with its cord, and the staff you're carrying in your hand. So he gave them to her, then went and slept with her, and she conceived by him. She got up and went away, took off her veil, and put on her widow's clothes. Yehuda sent the kid with his friend the Adulamai to receive the guarantee items back from the woman. But he couldn't find her. He asked the people near where she had been, Where is the prostitute who was on the road at Ainaim? But they answered, There hasn't been any prostitute here. So he returned to Yehuda and said, I couldn't find her. Also, the people there said, There hasn't been any prostitute here. Yehuda said, All right, let her keep the things, so that we won't be publicly shamed. I sent the kid, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Yehuda was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been acting like a whore. Moreover, she is pregnant as a result of her prostitution. Yehuda said, Bring her out and let her be burned alive. When she was brought out, she sent this message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man to whom these things belong. Determine, I beg you, whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Yehuda acknowledged owning them. He said, She is more righteous than I because I didn't let her become the wife of my son Shela, And he never slept with her again. When she went into labor, it became evident that she was going to have twins. As she was in labor, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took his hand and tied a scarlet thread on it, saying, This one came out first. But then he withdrew his hand, and his brother came out. So she said, How did you manage to break out first? Therefore he was named Peretz. Then out came his brother with the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was given the name Zerach. So this chapter 38 might seem a little bit out of place in the midst of Yosef's story. At the end of chapter 37, uh, there was one verse that tells us Yosef is sold to Potiphar, and then after this, chapter 39, it continues with the Yosef Potiphar story. But this account of Yehuda's family is placed chronologically and genealogically in the right place. You see, with Yosef gone, um, and Reuven, who slept with his father's concubine Bilha, and Shimon and Levi, 
that led the raid of all the males in Shechem for raping their sister Dina, um, they had all fallen out of favor uh, for incest and treachery. So Yehuda would have been likely the Bekor, the firstborn, uh, to receive the Baraka, that firstborn blessing. Uh, he may have well viewed his half-brother Yosef as a rival, but Yosef was now in Egypt. And here in verse 1, it starts with the words, it was at this time. So that does place everything chronologically in the right order while Yosef is in Egypt. All these remaining chapters of Genesis that we're studying through, they reveal God's divine providence. Now keep that in mind as we observe this chapter a little closer. And here at the beginning, we see Yehuda starting his life. He's leaving Hebron, and he settles near a man named Hira in Adjulam. And that's a town just about one mile northwest of Hebron. So not too far. But his separation from his brothers was more than geographical. What we see him doing here, we actually see him integrating with the Canaanites, the Canaanim. And he does this by marrying the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. And having three sons with her, they named them Er, Onan, and Shelah. From here, the story progresses very quickly. The next thing we read is when Yehuda takes a wife for his firstborn, Er. But God kills him. What? <laughs> I gotta admit, when I first read that, all I could think was, wow. It, it just stopped me right in my tracks, and I had to read it over again. And I notice that the verse says, Adonai, or Lord or in the original Hebrew using the proper name of God, yud heh vav it says that Yehoveh, or Yehua himself, kills Er. But why did he kill him? Well, because Er was raw, evil, in Yehoveh God's perspective, although we're not told specifically how he was evil. Now, I know some people might have a difficult time accepting that our loving Father God could possibly do such a seemingly heartless thing. But friends, we must acknowledge that God is the source and the giver of all life. He alone who gives life is the only one who has the right to take life away. And that's that. And next we see Yehovah exercise his right once again. We're told that Yehovah kills Onan. Uh, because of his deliberate and rebellious rejection of his duty to marry his brother's widow and produce offspring for his deceased brother. Now, he does this by spilling his semen on the ground so that she couldn't get pregnant. And that act, that rebellious rejection, it displeased Yehovah. And the Hebrew word for displeased used here is yara, displeased because of the evil. In the Hebrew culture, there's something that's called the Leveret Law. And you could read more about this in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 to 10, if you want to look it up. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10. And although this Leveret Law wasn't quite in writing, it was uh, part of the customs and the practice of that culture at the time where um, a close family member of a deceased man would have to step in and, and provide offspring in the name of the deceased man. And usually this was done by uh, a brother or a cousin. But why wouldn't Onan want to fulfill his duty of this leveret type of marriage? Well, you see, if he had produced a son, it wouldn't have been his own. It would have been a son in the name of his deceased brother, the firstborn. And that child would then be entitled to Yehuda's estate as a son of the firstborn. 
and if the widow Tamar was not given a son, she would be left with no one to care for her, thus facing extreme poverty. Now I invite you to look into the Messianic writings, or um, the New Testament, and turn to James chapter 1, verse 27. It talks about the true religion, James chapter 1, verse 27. And it reads, The religious observance that God the Father considers pure and faultless is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being contaminated by the world. Now, what does it mean to be contaminated by the world? Well, very clearly, Onan was looking out for his own inheritance. Um, because his brother was out of the way, he was now the firstborn. And he wasn't about to produce a, a rival son for his elder brother and, and do himself in that way because he wanted first dibs on his father's estate. And on top of that, we also see him failing to care for the widow Tamar. And this was Yara, or displeasing to Yehovah, and that's the reason that he killed Onan. So with both Er and Onan gone, the third-born Shela was the only son left. And although it would have been his leverage duty to take the widow Tamar as wife and, and produce offspring, um, he was deemed still too young to marry. At least that's the reason that Yehuda gave Tamar. And then he tells Tamar to go remain a widow and go live with her father until Shelah's old enough. But truthfully, Yehuda just feared losing his third son. Now keep in mind, he didn't know why his other sons died. He most likely thought of Tamar as some sort of uh, bad luck. He's just like, okay, just go, go to your dad's, you know, get out of here, stay away from my son. <laughs> I mean, can you really blame him? It's the only son that he has left. And moving on to verse 12, we see that a considerable amount of time had passed. We're told that Yehuda's wife had died. And after the mourning period, which is about 30 days, uh, Yehuda goes along with his trusted friend Hira to Timnah. Now, why are they headed there? Well, to supervise and participate in the sheep shearing season. Now, remember, Tamar's at her father's house, waiting for Shela to be old enough so they can marry and have children. But we see Tamar still wearing her widow's garb. But why? I mean, typically it was only for the 30-day mourning period that women were required to wear them. So this little detail, it reveals a little bit more that she had continued to live in some sort of a state of mourning because her deceased husband's brother also refused to give her a child. And when Tamar learns that her father-in-law is passing through that town on his way to Timnah, she decides to take matters into her own hands. And um, she's pretty desperate at this point. She just wanted whatever she was entitled to. So she got a little creative and uh, devised a plan. She would disguise herself as a prostitute. And Tamar knew that Shelah was of marrying age, and Yehuda had made no arrangements yet. So she devises this plan to have Yehuda fulfill the leverage duty himself, because she knew that he wouldn't agree to do so knowingly. So Tamar uses her feminine wiles and places her provocatively dressed self at the entrance to Enaim. Interestingly, the name Enaim means eyes that look. And surely Yehuda's eyes were looking. The widower's eyes were looking at the widow disguised as a prostitute. 
Yehuda thought her to be some sort of temple prostitute, which was considered to be a legitimate part of the Canaanite culture. Uh, sleeping with temple prostitutes was just sort of a, a pagan worship practice that symbolized fertility. And it was also associated with the Temple of Baal. Now keep in mind, Yehuda had been living amongst the pagan Kenanim for many years, and his deceased wife was also a Kenani. So participating in this sort of activity really wasn't that big of a deal for him. When Yehuda approaches this undercover prostitute, he starts talking business straight away, and they agree on a price for the consensual transaction. Yet Tamar had no real interest in the payment. But she demands that his signet seal, his cord, and his staff be given to her as a guarantee until she receives the agreed payment of one young goat. You see, a prominent man in the ancient Near East typically endorsed contracts with a cylindrical seal that he wore around his neck on a cord. And then the walking stick would likely have had some sort of identifying marks on it. Now, it was customary to use three pieces of identification in that time, so Yehuda agreed to her terms. They have sex, and they go their separate ways. And now that Yehuda had consumed these services, it was time for him to pay the price. And boy, does he end up paying a price. Here, he sends his friend Hira with a goat as payment for the prostitute and to collect his items that were given to her as a guarantee. And when Hira gets to the location, he starts asking around about a prostitute that was seen hanging around there. Now, it wasn't good for anyone's reputation to keep asking for the whereabouts of a prostitute. And after being told that there were no prostitutes hanging around there, he returns to Yehuda with a young goat in tow. When he sees Hira, he's probably wondering, why do you still have the goat? Where's all my stuff? So to save themselves the shame, Yehuda decides that it's just best to cut his losses and convinces himself that, hey, at least I've done my part in sending the payment. Oh well, not my problem anymore. <laughs> Little did he know what was coming next. In verse 24, we're told three months later, it comes to Yehuda's attention that his daughter-in-law was pregnant, that she'd been shamefully behaving like a whore. So what does he do? Well, he demands that she be brought out and burned alive. What? Yehuda was just as guilty of immorality himself, yet he calls for the execution of Tamar by burning? Why? Because she was found pregnant as a result of her prostitution? Talk about a double standard, man. His indiscretion was hidden, but hers couldn't be concealed, or so he thought. When Tamar presents the signet seal, the cord, and the staff, Yehuda discovers that, dun-dun-dun, he was the father of the unborn child. Hey, at least he owned up to his wrong, and he realized that it was by his withholding Shela from Tamar that he had caused her to take these drastic actions. And then Yehuda declares, she is more righteous than I. Okay, um, this was said more as an admission of guilt. It's not like he was praising her for actually being righteous. Uh, I mean, Tamar wasn't righteous at all in what she had done, no more than Yehuda was righteous in what he had done. But at least in this way, he was repenting and he never slept with her again. You see, Yehovah God simply used them, despite their sin and rebellion, to achieve his divine purpose. At the end of chapter 38, we're treated to the telling of the dramatic birthing event when Tamar gives birth to twin sons. At their birth, 
a hand pops out, and the midwife ties a scarlet thread to indicate which child would be the firstborn. But then the hand retracts back into the womb, and then out pops the other twin. So the twin that eventually came out first was named Peretz. And Peretz means um, pushing through or breaking out. And the second twin with the scarlet thread on his hand was named Zerach, which means scarlet. Now let's take a moment to reflect on the birth of another set of twins, Yaakov and Esau. I couldn't help but notice, you know, a few connections in the details there. See, Esau, the one who came out first, was red, and when he emerged, his brother Yaakov's hand was holding his heel. So there was some sort of entanglement there, and something odd, a slight detail. Eventually, we see that Esau gets passed over, and the line of promise is carried forward through Yaakov. Here, Zerach's hand emerges first, and a red scarlet thread is tied around it to indicate that he was to have the designation and privileges of the firstborn. But God had other plans. You see, Zerach gets passed over from the womb as Peretz pushes through and he's born first. And later we'll see that the line of promise is carried forward through Peretz. Now this was all part of God's divine providence. How so? Well, let's take a look forward to Peretz's future generations. Now bear with me here for a sec. I, I hope that this doesn't get too confusing for you, but I got super excited about this while I was studying, and I just really want to share it with you today. Ready? Here we go. Peretz has a great-grandson named Aminadab, and Aminadab has two children that are named in Scripture. The first one is a son named Nashon, a prince of Judah, the great-great-great-grandfather of King David. And the second is a daughter, Bathsheba, and Bathsheba ends up marrying a man from the tribe of Levi named Aharon. Perhaps you've heard of him. Um, Aaron, the Levite high priest, uh, Moshe's brother. And from that line of Bathsheba and Aharon, many generations later come Elizabeth and Mary, the mothers of John the Baptist and Yeshua, the promised Messiah. So Mary was a Levite. But wait a second. You might have heard of Yeshua referred to as the Lion of Judah. That meant he was from the line of King David, the great-great-great-grandson of Minadab's son, Nashon. Well, Joseph, Mary's husband, he's from the line of King David. So Yeshua was both from a physical bloodline of Yehuda through Mary, and was legally a son of the tribe of Yehuda through his adoptive earthly father, Joseph. So this account of Yehuda and Tamar that we've studied today, it plays a major role in fulfilling the prophecies of Scripture pertaining to the coming of the Messiah Yeshua from the tribe of Yehuda. Isn't this just awesome? Well, there's another very important point about Tamar's background that's not contained in the story. Uh, Tamar was a Semite. She was a descendant of Shem, the sanctified line of good. She wasn't a Canaanite from the line of Ham, the accursed line of evil, like Yehuda's wife, um, we're not even given her name in scripture. And he had three sons with this Canaanite woman. Obviously, he didn't care much about the line of promise, and we know this because he willfully polluted the bloodline with Canaanite blood. According to God's divine providence, and despite their totally unrighteous actions, Yehuda impregnates a Semite woman, Tamar, who would produce Semite sons who would continue the line of promise. 
So do you see how God went through great lengths to ensure that Canaanite blood was not mixed with Israelite blood, especially if it would affect the line of covenant promise? Yehovah even did it when the covenant line would not be directly affected, uh, such as that time when the planned marriage between Dina and the king of Shechem's son, uh, it was averted because the males of Shechem were killed by Shimon and Levi. The purity of this bloodline was very important to Yehovah God, and that's why we have to take note of it here. So we can see how Tamar's bold act, as unsavory as it was, um, had actually preserved the purity of the line of covenant that began with Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and now to Yehuda and Peretz. In this story, we see God's governing dynamic of sanctification at work. Sanctification. Uh, Peretz was divided, elected, and separated away from all the other children of Yehuda to be the conduit of the all-important line of covenant promise that was first given to Abraham. And we also see the governing dynamic of God's providence here, as neither Yehuda nor Tamar had the intent to obey God. They were just wanting to satisfy their own selfish lusts and ambitions, right? And they had absolutely no idea that they would be producing the next generation of the covenant promise. Everything that happened here is a perfect example and demonstration of God's divine providence. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I believe God works with our choices. And I believe that his will is always done. That doesn't mean that we always choose the right thing. But I can trust God's prophetic word and his perfect timing to reveal his divine providence. Friends, I hope that you take the time to study through these passages again at your own pace and and ask God to reveal whatever message and, and truths that he has for you to discover. It would also be a really good idea to get together with your own Axis Church communities and and just share what God's Spirit's been revealing to you as you read his holy scriptures. And before we say goodbye today, here's a couple items that you could discuss with your own Axis groups this week. One, take a closer look at the genealogy of Yehuda to King David to Messiah Yeshua, and then chart it backwards to see how God purposed people to bring about his promised Messiah. That should be fun. <laughs> and two, how does God work through sinful people and bad choices to accomplish his purposes? Friends, thank you so much for joining us for today's Access Learn study. As always, it's such a joy to be able to get around God's word and learn more about his plan and his purposes and about his amazing love and his promises. I'm so excited to see where he'll lead us next. May the grace of our Lord Yeshua and the shalom of God our Father be with all. Amen. I rest assured, I rest assured you never